you have your copy of God's Word with you this evening, I invite you to turn now to Luke, Luke chapter 23. Be looking at yet another account of some of the things that we have just heard, that even now we are considering. I find it somewhat interesting that a day in some ways marking the lowest point in human history is titled Good Friday. I find it equally interesting that you can still find it on most public calendars. But when you think about what this day represents and what took place on this day in history, the trial of Jesus has ended and at this point he's been led to the place of crucifixion his body was upon the cross and he was elevated to a place that from far off he could be seen well looking that direction you could see him well the son of god crucified we should very much consider this day with great sadness And yet, at the same time, it's very appropriate to call it Good Friday. In fact, this is possibly the best Friday to take place in human history, thus creating a bit of a paradox for us to unravel. And our goal this evening will be to sort out that paradoxical statement. How can this be the darkest Friday in human history and also one of the best Fridays in human history at the same time? time. Well, Luke gives us a very unique view, his take on things. Remember, his goal is to be accurate and orderly, to give you an account of what took place so that you might believe. And in that, even hearing that, you're going to get a little bit of what's going on. How can we have those two things together? We find it here in these verses. And so I invite you, please, once more, Look with me to the Word of God this evening as I read for us our passage. I'll be reading from Luke 23, verses 44 through 49. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father... And to your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home and beat their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Would you please go with me to the Lord in prayer as we ask his blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, we have sung, we have heard of the news. Jesus Christ died. Innocent man, Fully God, fully man, giving up his life, sacrificing himself, making a payment 
Not for himself, but for the sake of others. For sinners. Lord, help us. Be with all those here tonight. Be with those joining us online. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. For Lord, no one should listen to this passage and walk away unchanged. No one should hear these words and not see you for who you are. See our sin for what it is. And either praise you for you have forgiven them. Or bear further judgment for once again hearing the truth and casting it away. Lord, I pray that you would bless all of those here and those joining us. Be with us now in this time of study in Christ's name. Amen. There's a lot going on in the world today that will make you question the value of a life. Uh, Two examples came to mind um, I, I like to look at this from time to time as a father with young children. And one on the way, economists like to estimate um, what it would cost to raise a child from birth to 18 in today's economy um, and in the, the average American um, lifestyle. The most recent economists have, have agreed uh, that for 2021, they're always a, about a year behind because they're not profits. Um, it takes about $280,000 in America to, to bring a child to the age of 18 through all of their activities and hobbies and, you know, things like food and clothing and shelter and all that good stuff. And so that's what the world says a life is worth, at least a zero to 18-year-old. <laughs> Coincidentally, I, I remember that one didn't surprise me as much as when I went and had to meet with the life insurance agent. And I was told I need life insurance. That's the right thing to do for my family. That's fine. Okay, whatever. And he said, Aaron, he wrote a number and he kept writing zeros and he kept writing. And he said, this is what you're worth if you're dead. And I was looking at him in utter shock. I'm not worth it alive. What are you doing? Don't tell people that. Apparently, some people are worth a lot if they're no longer here. The world likes to quantify life. The world likes to throw it away, and we don't have time to speak of that this evening. But it places such a low value on those inside the womb that it doesn't even get to start the count. It has all sorts of ways and metrics to value someone and to speak of its worth and his or her worth, excuse me. And that wouldn't be very helpful for us this evening to strategize on those things. But would be helpful this evening is to ask a question of a similar fashion and yet a little bit different. How much are you worth to God? What is your value spiritually? How much are you worth this evening? And I like asking that question, one, because I'm prepared to answer it, and two, because the Bible gives an answer. The the Bible gives us a very clear answer, and, and let me just give you a spoiler alert this evening. It's worth far more than... Raising a zero to 18 year old and it's worth far more than my life insurance policy. For those who trust in Christ by faith, it was worth his own blood. It was worth his very life. And see this, I want to look at different aspects of this passage in Luke. We really are going to look at different ways people responded to this event. 
from their life experiences, from the, the knowledge they had at the time. We're going to see how much they valued Christ, they valued His life, and in some ways we're going to reverse it back on themselves and ask how much were they worth through this story. And so we're going to see several different reactions. First, the world reacts. The, the world reacts to the death of Christ. See this in verses 44 to 45. Then we see Christ give a response to his own life in verse 46. Thirdly, we see the centurion give a response in verse 47. Fourthly, the crowd will respond in verse 48. And then finally, those closest to Jesus and his earthly ministry will respond in verse 49. Each of these groups will look at this moment, look at this event, and ask what was it worth and by considering all of them, we will answer that question for ourselves. Please follow along with me. I love the fact that we must begin with the natural world. If you were with us for Palm Sunday, the Pharisees rebuke Jesus, tell them to stop saying what they do, and Jesus wisely quips, I'll tell you this, if they stopped praising me, the rocks would cry out. That the natural world has no problem responding to God when God calls it to respond. And I will confess, it, it took quite some time in my life as you're tracking through these events and you're, you're trying to play that numbers game. It was okay, Jesus was in the tomb for three days, but um, really I only see two here. And you have to understand a Jewish way of thinking and then there's some supernatural going on. Uh, but Broadly speaking, from a Jewish culture, uh, the, the day was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And so if we were really trying to track things thematically, we're in the second day in the tomb for Christ at this point. Depending on how you measure daylight savings time, but that, that's beside the point. <laughs> you know, night was measured in, in four or three four-hour watches. And so we, we do our math and we look at things the, the way they saw things in different periods of time. We can calculate it's, it's roughly around 12 p.m. that Luke tells us the sky grew dark. And it remained so for three hours. Now, why are you babbling on about this, Pastor Aaron? Let's get to the good stuff. This is the good stuff. It wasn't simply a cloudy day. This was a supernatural event. God bent the laws of nature to note the significance of this moment. It's almost as if God said, son, you bow at the majesty of what's being professed. And unlike mankind, when God tells man to do something, the son said, okay, God did immediately, without question. The sky grew dark. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. You've got God withholding the sun from setting in Joshua 10. You've got um, the Red Sea being parted in Exodus. We see God shutting the lion's mouth in Daniel over and over again. And we've talked about this. We talked about this on Palm Sunday, how creation obeys God and obeys God's commands. We could say the same thing about Christ. Christ performs miracles that are equal in majesty, leaving no question about his divine power, healing diseases, curing the lame. Bringing people back from the dead. And so it's very appropriate here to recognize that creation 
unlike man, as we'll get there in a moment, honors this moment. We also see something else going on, though. Not just creation responding, and we don't even have time this evening really to talk about the the curtain being torn and the implications of that. We'll touch on it, but there's all kinds of things going on. We also see that Christ responds. Luke giving one of the briefer accounts of this as we we heard it in Matthew. Um, And if we looked at John, we'd see something different. Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What is significant about that statement? What does that tell us about Christ? Well, this is a cry of trust. Jesus trusted his Father. He trusted God's plan. He's resting in the Father even in a moment of great judgment. Jesus knows what this will entail. The wrath of God being poured out from heaven upon him. Full, total, and complete judgment. But the relationship between Jesus and God is so intimate that Jesus points nowhere else but to the Father. Even as the Father looks on him and prepares the full measure of his wrath. And what's beautiful here, we normally quote the 22nd Psalm at this point. As we heard in Matthew's account. But using... Luke's account, we go to another psalm. Jesus saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's also quoting Psalm 31 this evening. And to you, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that they've hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Jesus was saying a lot more than I'm ready. He was saying, I trust you fully, God. I trust our plan. I trust the promises that we've made. We're going to go through with this. We're going to save these people. We are going to pay the price. There's a very real practical application for this today, dear Christian. If the Son of God, God Himself, the one who helped write the plan that He was praying for strength to carry out, if in that moment of need for Jesus, He turns to the Father, what does that mean for you and me when we face difficulties and trials? What does that mean for you and me when we face hardship, when we face a season of doubt and worry and fear and anxiety and uncertainty? Where should we go? To the Father. We should go to the Father. Jesus was showing us what to do, knowing what we would face, knowing our difficulty, knowing our sorrow. He suffered so that we could be free to go to the Father. Again, you have to zoom out even further in your theological history and and understanding of, of Jewish practice. Jesus dies on the same day that the Passover lamb was to be slaughtered. That's not coincidental. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is the sacrifice and not a yearly sacrifice. Not one that has to be done again and again and again. The forever sacrifice 
Jesus is saying to himself and to the Father and to us today through this submission that he is enough. He is enough. And I don't know about you, sometimes it's easy to get discouraged. You're, you're, because I hear you and, and I, well, I hear me, but I'm putting myself in your shoes and saying, you know, all right, pastor, that's fine. You're, you're telling me to be like Jesus and to live under his example. And that's great. But he's Jesus. I can't do it. Help me. Give me something more relatable. How about something as relatable as an elite Roman centurion? How about his response? I love this. When the centurion saw what had taken place and, and note in your translation there, he praised Pretty sure your translation's got a capital G there for God, meaning Yahweh, meaning the God of the Bible, saying, certainly this man was innocent. A Roman centurion, an elite of the elite, one of the most efficient, creative killing machines on the face of the earth. They would all but conquer the known world in their time. They were the most inventive and most creative people in death. And in engineering, in society, they change the world in a lot of ways. After taking in all the events that had taken place, having to sit and to stand there and to listen, to consider what had taken place, this centurion concludes Jesus is innocent. You could also translate that word righteous. Be an appropriate way to translate the Greek there. Don't you know that that centurion in that moment questioned everything he stood for? Don't you know that in that moment, right there, guarding this man, he questioned his life, he questioned his purpose, he questioned his being? We know he did because listen to the verbiage here. He praised God, the God of the Bible, saying, This man was innocent. Death was normal for this officer. It wasn't the death that shocked him. It would have been a part of his job. It would have been a part of his life. But there was something about Jesus that sent him into self-reflection. And the conclusion is he was innocent. I can't say it with certainty. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But the death of Christ likely made a believer out of this man. Think about that. Being physically present had that effect on him. And this gets back to our original question. It, it really is what um, we're, we're here to ask tonight. What are we worth? How do we find our value? What do we place on that? Well, and the answer, the only way you can find that answer is not what are you worth, but what is Christ worth? What was his life worth? What was his sacrifice worth? What was it worth for him to die? Because we know by reading this account, and Lord willing, on Sunday morning we'll hear it was accepted as an offering. And so when you ask, what are you worth? The better question is, what's Christ worth? Because his worth was given to you. But not everyone responds positively. Not everyone rightly understands their own worth or the worth of Christ. The crowd, they react in confusion and disbelief. Remember, too, this was a lot of the people that last Sunday were welcoming him into the city. 
Hail, King of the Jews. Hosanna in the highest. Glory to God. Praise be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember those guys? They were the same ones shouting crucify him. As we read earlier. And now they're the same ones here baffled. Completely and utterly baffled. They came for a spectacle, a show. They came to be entertained. This was their nightly TV episode. When they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. They were so shocked. They were so overcome. And they were deflated. They were deflated. It's getting through a book and it doesn't end like you want. In fact, it ends the opposite. It's one of those great Greek tragedies where you get through it and then the hero dies on the last page. And you're like, wait a minute. Oh. And then you're angry that you read it. They're angry that they attended. They're angry that they set this up. They helped orchestrate this thing and then they've been let down. And there's a great weight upon them. They valued their life and their entertainment greater than their God. And I hope, I hope as they went home, much like the centurion, they were left going, there's something about that Jesus. There's something about who he is and what he came to do and what he's about that we're missing. But my heart goes out because, you know, the, you've got the crowd, the broader group of followers of Christ. That's one thing. But the poor disciples... And it, the poor, poor disciples, they, they're always the ones getting kicked. Because the last group is them. And we know how they respond. All his acquaintances, the 12, or 11, you could say 11 at this point, and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Do you hear the silence in that sentence? Not sorrow, not overwhelming grief, not sadness, not run in and try to stop it. They stand at a distance watching. It's not a total rejection, and we know they come around. By God's grace and His mercy, they come around. But it is a question mark. It, it, it is a, I'm, I'm not so sure about all of this. But I tell you, as you weigh your worth and you weigh your value and you weigh your eternal significance, I admit that some will hear of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and respond with indifference. Some may respond with opposition. They don't care for this, and so they don't let it affect them. And again, I don't want to throw them too under the bus. Come Sunday, as Paul Harvey would say, to hear the rest of the story, it gets better. Think about the next three days for them. The waiting and the wondering and the doubting and the questioning. On the day of judgment, everyone will give an account of their lives before God. Everyone will stand in his presence and he will ask, what did you do with that I gave you? Your life, your time, your talent, your treasury. And we'll all have to give an answer. And there's really only two answers that we can give. I wasted it. I gave it to myself. And I lived it up to the best of my ability because I trusted me more than you. I wanted what I wanted more than what you wanted. I disobeyed you and your commands and your laws. 
And to them, they will face eternal judgment. Eternal punishment for blasphemy against their God. But there is another option. There is another choice. If you submit yourself to Jesus Christ, if you confess your sin to Him and repent, turning from it, trusting in His blood, trusting in His sacrifice, and saying, Jesus Christ, you are enough for me. On that day, I think we're going to end up saying the same thing. I really do. I, I think that if I can even talk from the, the crying, it's only God's grace that I haven't started yet. But on that day of judgment, weeping uncontrollably, trying to confess all of my sin and my failures and my sorrow and my sadness and my mistakes and my misdeeds, I really believe God's going to have to pick me up because I don't think I'm going to stop. He's going to say, but son, you're covered by the blood of Christ. You're covered by the blood of Christ. And if I could wish anything for you, and I've been praying it all day, and I pray it even now, I want you, on that day of judgment, as you stand before God and you think about what you're worth, you respond to Him. It's not how much I'm worth, how much Jesus is worth. And God's going to say, that's enough. That's more than enough. Welcome into my kingdom. Paid in full. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this is indeed a dark day in history. This payment had to be made. But, oh Lord, may we celebrate because payment was made. Payment was made in full. And if we but trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin, we stand forgiven. But as we gather together this evening in this service, may we contemplate the fact that it had a price. You didn't do away with sin. You paid for it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the payment made on our behalf. We praise you now in Christ's name. Amen.